Namutasa Vayavatu Varatu Samma Sambutasa Namutasa Vayavatu Varatu Samma Sambutasa Namutasa Vayavatu Varatu Samma Sambutasa Buddham Dhammam Sangyam Namasam So it's lovely to see so many people here and so many people I know over the years who continue to practice and to be interested in Buddha Dhamma, you know. In this world, um, after we have experimented with all the things we want, or at least subjectively, well, we, 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 we got many things we wanted and then we got rid of many things we did not want and uh, continue to want more things and finally got bored with them, then you get exactly what you want again, and then you get bored with them also. You know, so at some point even getting what you want is not much fun anymore. As many of you <laughs> have shared with me. It's a, actually, it's a very important step in one's life um, because um, in modern psychology, you might be called depressed or not adapted to the time or maybe uh, not, not very well. In Buddhism, it's a, time, it's a moment when you realize the limitation of worldly pleasures. That's all. Nothing very personal about it. You just come to a point where you can see a little bit more clearly. And very often, we interpret it in the wrong way, right? So when I was looking at this topic, uh, I wrote it down, actually. We, we re as you know, probably by now, you must have been told that we're invited to write titles for these Sunday talks, and uh, anybody can write the titles. And so one day, I just jotted down very quickly, you know, why discipline? I just want to be happy. It probably was a moment mood. Uh, I didn't feel that particularly, but I know that the mind can think like that, you know. So um, it's just about the Buddhist teaching, really, but it's just interesting to sort of investigate this whole realm of, I just want to be happy, why discipline? Because very often people will um, associate discipline with a whole kind of a program of misery. You say, now you're going to be sitting every morning for 10 minutes, and then you'll be on a vegetarian diet for your health. And then you'll have to call your mom that you don't like once a week, you know, to make sure that you repair the relationship that you've lost with her, or vice versa. And then, and then you'll do a bit of jogging to make sure your muscles get continue that. And then at the end of the day, you do your little puja if you're a Buddhist. And by the time somebody told you that, you just feel, my God, I just... I think I'm just going to forget about Buddhism or any religion or any discipline or any... It's just people are so filled with agitation and restlessness. There's so much restlessness in the air, in the society itself. It's not your agitation or your restlessness. You're just basically, um, you know, receiving also this incredible... Um, restless, restless activities that goes on in our modern world of high technology and uh, and uh, and so on, you know, speedy communication and 
basically a world that has, you know, um, gone that is going so fast that you you say, is there something wrong if I don't want to go so fast? You know, can I go slowly? You know, can I just be myself, or do I have to be the super achiever? Um, you know, uh, good looking, young, fast, intelligent, bright, with all the right teeth and the right smile. If you live in America, that's very important. You know, do I have to be that? You know, so yeah, at some point you get really tired to be told what to do. <laughs> And then when somebody asks you to do a bit more discipline, it's like, I don't want to hear this word again in this lifetime. Now, this is a good moment as well, because at that moment, usually, it's a, it can be a breakthrough. You realize as, that your perception of discipline can be seen just as a perception. You know? And this is something we're not very good at. Uh, looking in the right direction, or you could say with right view, or from the perspective of Dhamma. Why? We think it's a personal problem. It's not a personal problem. Forgetting, not being mindful of something, forgetting, being confused, is just states of mind. The reality of this is just states of mind coming through your mind. You know, confusion goes through your mind. It's, the Buddha keeps repeating us, this is not your confusion, this is just a state of mind. It's empty of self, and it's Im impermanent. How many retreats have we done just to get that message? And how many times have you realized that it hasn't quite sunk in yet? <laughs> it's still, still, this my, you know, my practice is terrible, blah, blah, blah. It's not your practice. It's practice. Don't make it yours, don't associate it as yours, because as soon as you associate it with me, usually the program of me is so embedded in the whole history of my success and failure, it's so embedded into, in all, of the, all your kind of personal events in life, which has been maybe very satisfactory and pleasant and happy, and it's their opposite. You know, it's, it's basically embedded with a lot of complexities. So the Buddha, in his compassion, Remind us, come back to the present moment. Oh, how wonderful. Now, can I live without hist history for about a quarter of a second? Yes, I can. How about one second? Yes, I can. How about one hour? Mm, it's more difficult already. So we pump the retreat program, you know, I need another one so I can live more peaceful without a huge kind of um, complexity of my personal history, which is gone. It's gone. And these are not words. It's a discipline you need to be reminded that it's gone, it's finished. But we keep dragging our old stories, we keep dragging our history. And that is influencing our mind and body. Mind and body are so interconnected that whatever you believe in your mind will affect your mind deeply, you know. You can experience, I'm sure you have experienced that, you have experimented with that probably already, you know. Think negative thoughts for five minutes, your whole body is turning into this kind of lump of negativity. Think happy thoughts, wish somebody well for five minutes, even not, even two and a half minutes is enough. 
even one in 25 minutes, you know, you find by yourself the difference. You don't have to believe anybody. You don't have to go back and see, you know, the great gurus out there in your mind that know supposed to know it all. And, uh, you know, just to be able to testify by yourself the reality of what your mind is experiencing. So I was looking, what is happiness? You know, I want to be happy. What does it mean to be happy? I guess we can go by, by uh, going to the description of uh, dukkha. What is dukkha? Not happy, misery. Okay? Which is at the heart of the Buddhist teaching, the Four Noble Truths. There's dukkha, there is a cause of dukkha, there is an ending to dukkha, and there is a path leading you out of dukkha. That's very good news, isn't it? Now, when you, we chant every morning um, this description of dukkha, you know, okay, being, when I associate myself, okay, with the thing I don't like, I feel miserable. I'm not always, but remember, when I, I am, you know, when I'm stuck with things I don't like, I feel miserable. When I don't have what I like, I, I'm separated from the thing I like, I am miserable. And the misery is not like you have a you know, nervous breakdown. You just feel, you can see in yourself the difference between the happy moment when you got something you liked and the misery. When you realize that what you saw wasn't what you wanted. You know, somebody bring you a present, and you know you have to say thank you, and you have to kind of, uh, you know, have to be great. You know, according to the Buddhist teaching, you have to be grateful, you know, full of gratitude and thankfulness and all that. You know, so at some point um, you can train your mind to be like that, which is a good thing if you want to have healthy relationship with people. You don't have to them actually. My your gift is not what I wanted. It is not really it's my color. I hate that color. And uh, it got stripes, and I really don't like that. You know, and so, you know, a kind of social relationship, social conventions are very good to keep the world fairly peaceful, you know. So they're not, in my, when I was a teenager, I thought it was just rubbish, you know. We just have to be straight, ourselves, free, and so on. Tell people straight in the face what they, you know, what they don't want to hear. But never mind that, They'll, they get my truth, you know. So you felt really good about your truth. You didn't mind what other people's truth was, you know, but aware. But my truth was, made me happy just to be truthful, even if they hated it, cried afterward, and uh, got into a terrible state, and so on. So when you go back, okay, and it continues. When you are separate from the loved ones, whatever it is, whether it's a pencil, a mother, a father, or your dog, suffer. Separation is painful, okay? And then uh, you have also the, the last bit, which is the most important part in those, you know, for those who have such a great keenness on practicing vipassana meditation, is that the five, being identified with mind and body is dukkha. Not pleasant. That's the teaching of the Buddha. We don't have to believe him blindly. But this is what he presents to us, you know, not to believe, but to 
check it out by ourselves, to experiment, to find out for ourselves whether these truths are real or not. So if we reverse it, so, okay, um, you know, being associated with what I dislike, so being associated with what I like is pleasant. Being separated from the thing I dislike is happiness, kind of a pleasant happiness, pleasure, yeah? And then, um, you know, um, uh, um, reconnecting with the loved ones or coming together with the loved ones is happiness, okay? And then when I'm sort of, um, you know, when I practice inner vipassana to really know that my body and my mind are not really mine, and send, I remember that, I recollect this, I, then when I know this for good, then I, it's the happiness of li liberation is experienced you know when you come to the you know face the truth that one day this body will die one day this body will change one day this body will be different than when you were 20 year old anybody of you remember 20 year old and now different you wouldn't have believed that at the age of 20 you thought at the age of 20 we tend to think we are immortal yeah. never think we'll have become fat will become, you need a hearing aid, you become, you know, slower, you become, what else? You have to be careful with your diet, you've got cholesterol and diabetic condition, maybe, or all this kind of illness that you can get. I'm spared from that for the time being, touch wood, but, you know, the kind of thing we can get as a body is aging, changing. And then, you know, if we are, if we really still haven't seen clearly, you know, not walking on the path that shows you clearly, clearly that your mind and body does not belong to you. It's your home for a little while, you know, and they have certain programs, the mind and body have certain programs. Some people are born like dwarfs, other like giant, other like the just right size that the society is prescribing, you know, for men and women the right size in terms of clothes, in terms of heights, in terms of everything, you know, the right shape of your cheeks and your nose and all that sort of thing that people think is going to be happy. Mm -hmm. But is that really happiness? To have this strong attachment to our mind and our body. How, much, how many times have you noticed that you feel very defensive about what you think, what you want? What you assume is going to be true, is going to be real, is going to be abs the absolute truth. And no one can actually challenge that because you're convinced you're right. Yeah. So this kind of attachment to mind and body creates for ourselves a kind of, a, uh, you know, it's, uh, after a while you see it like a prison. It's like a prison. You are in a world of fear of losing what you like, a fear of being associated with, with what you don't like, what you fear, you know, you fear what you fear. And then you fear also um, losing your loved ones. You fear so many things. Fear and desires, that's the kind of foundation of our, you know, the way our personality is constructed. When you look at it more deeply, as long as these attachments are strong, we are in a world of fear. 
And fear is not, don't, nothing to judge because those fears, anyway, they, they keep, um, how can I say, they, they enable us to maybe live more safely. If we didn't have any fear, we might do things or you know, act in a way that would be very maybe dangerous. So things, life is useful for a certain time in the way it is, and then after a while we can move on, we can change, we can allow life to change. Yeah? We can allow our mind and body to move on into the direction that we wish to move on. So, um, to be, um, you know, to, to, when we investigate what this quality of happiness is about from the point of view of Dharma, it's very different. Getting what we want makes me happy for a little while, but when the conditions change or when I get bored, it's not happy anymore. You know, be, being separated from the thing I don't like is kind of fun for a little while, you know. I don't like my boss and I'm really on holiday for four weeks. God, what a good riddance, you know. I'm so happy. But, you know, after a while, that mental state is not particularly healthy, you know. We're all human beings. And then you have also the, um, you know, the, how can I say, the, this kind of fear of losing your body, fear of not being agreed upon by others, not fear of not being loved, being accepted, being included, being, you know, basically the fear of um, not being, not belonging in some ways. And so um, when we look at this, is that a happy state? No. Right. So most of the happiness we get in the world is based on these conditions that are changing that can cause uh, 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 the situation of dependency, where you depend on things so badly that it's called addiction. When you're so dependent for your happiness on certain things, you become addicted to these things because that happiness, um, you think, will arise through that particular um, cause, which are it's alcohol or smoking or sex abuse or, uh, you know, whatever it is. In America, they even have addiction to coffee mate. <laughs> you know, like, you have Alcoholic Anonymous, and uh, it's about 200 Anonymous in America. And one of them, I was surprised, it was coffee mate. Strange, isn't it? Some people are addicted to coffee mate. Well, I think it takes, you know, there's everything to satisfy everybody. <laughs> but the actual happiness in the Dharma and why discipline is part of this um, subject, you know, because it is a happiness that comes from realizing that the human mind, to have the happiness it's looking for, which is not just the happiness that is short-lived, that is requires to, um, you know, attach to desire for something so badly, you know, uses your energy just to get a very temporary pleasure. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's much better when it comes with less kind of... Um, Obsession, you know, 
you, pleasure is not is important. In fact, there is a sutta. I brought a book on the teaching of the Buddha, which I like very much, because Buddhists often think they should not have any pleasure. That if they are happy, there's something wrong. Do you know what I mean? You're not sort of sunk into the vulnerable truth. That must be bad. Do you know? So the Buddha says something which I discovered many years ago and I thought that was really amazing. Nothing special really, but merit in Pali is punya and it means uh, basically doing good, doing something good, like being generous is creating merit in your life, being kind. It's associated with the ten parameters. Being generous, being kind, being uh, patient, being... Uh, you know, uh, uh, determined, being uh, wise, being equanimous, being, you know, the kind of merit, okay? Not in a Christian way. And when I, I discovered, because I was interested in the in the kind of roots of words and uh, the meaning of words myself, so he, he says here, because, that's monks, monks, do not fear merit. Merit is a term for pleasure, for the wanted, the desired, the agreeable, and the loved. I have had direct knowledge by experience for a long period of what is wanted, desired, agreeable, and loved as a ripening of merit made over a long period. After maintaining in being the meditation of loving kindness for seven years, I did not return. So he goes through all the realm of existence. You know, I mean, in Buddhism, the Buddha talks about future life and past life, just a different world he was reborn into. Yeah, don't have to believe any of that. But actually, Ajahn Shah, actually, this teacher, he says, don't worry about past life and real life and past life and future life. Just see what your mind goes into the next moment. That will be your future life. See where it comes from. That's your past life. <laughs> Simplifying to see it in the present moment. And that was through this wisdom of experience, uh, etc. It goes to the you know the, the seven ages of world co of contraction and expansion. The age when the world was contracting, I went to heaven, of the Brahma of streaming radiance. In the age when the world was expanding, I was reborn in an empty Brahma. Brahma is the highest god in the, um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the cosmology. Man, Brahma mention, an empty Brahma mention. There was Brahma, the great Brahma, a transcendent being, untranscendent, and all-seer, a great, etc., etc. Wielder of powers, I have been Saka, the ruler of gods, 36 times. I have been a king many hundreds times as a righteous universal monarch, turning the wheel victorious in the seven, uh, sorry, victorious in all four quarters, in my realm, stabilized, and in possession of the seven treasures, what I need, what need I say of local kinship? I thought, of what action of mine is a fruit, is a ripening that I am now so mighty and powerful? I was a Buddha, not just in your body. So yeah. then it occurred to me: it is a fruit, the ripening of the three kind of actions of mine that I am now so mighty and powerful. That is to say, of giving, of control, and of restraint. Interesting, yeah? Because our society tends to make us feel, be selfish, you know, 
the society, the I, everything is I, you know, the whole Apple, for example, the Mac world is I, everything in front of all their machines is I. You notice that? Me. You keep rem being reminded me is important. Me. Right? So, we don't have merit is not in just, you know, acting according to me and for me. It's a kind of selfish, it's called selfishness. And then control, it means just not discipline and restraint, lack of restraint. Um, it's like lack of vigilance and mindfulness. Mindfulness makes you quite restrained. You know, because you're cautious, you're vigilant. It doesn't mean you may might end up shouting at somebody, you know, or slapping them in the face. You don't know what is the right action at that moment. <laughs> I don't advise it. It's never good. <laughs> the consequence of this kind of thing will never be happy, I can tell you. You'll have an enemy for life, probably. So don't go and do it. <laughs> Unless you are, well, uh, anyway, we're just all in really human being here. And so this is, you know, uh, so merit is a form of a term for pleasure, and so on, the wanted, okay? The desire, the agreeable. But that's from the Buddha's mind. What does that mean, you know? For us, wanted, you know, I mean, when I was younger, you know, I said, well, I like food, I like a good meal, or I like sea, I like to go to the sea and swim, or I like, oh, I like to have a nice boyfriend, or I like to have a nice this, or nice partner, or I like a sweet little dog that looks just like me, possibly. Well, I'm just joking, you know, but just, you know, what we like, okay? So there come a point when, from the Buddha Dharma's perspective, we discover there's a happiness which goes much deeper and is not dependent on changes, on the changing nature of conditions. So many people that enter a kind of uh, interest in the spiritual path is often that very door, that very gate, just suddenly realizing that there is maybe another way to live, another world. Not separate from this one, but just another perspective on things. Which we don't always get without remembering the Dhamma, the truth of Dhamma. And the truth of Dharma has to do with the first stage of the path to take you out of suffering is actually right view, seeing things rightly. And it's a very powerful training in the mind because when you look at your mind in meditation or even just sitting on a chair, just being just tranquil and doing nothing much, you begin to see how you know how we live with an incredible chaotic energy in ourselves caused by, again, I repeat, by fear, by not getting what we want, by getting what we don't want, and by the disappointment of getting what you want and not feeling happy. That's a big one, isn't it? I used to say that's the point of maturity. <laughs> you get everything you want and you're still bored. I saw it. I have a wonderful story of this when I was a young I was in an agarica, actually, and I was, um, you know, at that time you still dream about the best thing you can have in life, you know, even as a nun, as on the spiritual level, of course, you know, quote-unquote, <laughs> nothing, you know, gross. 
But so I wanted always to go and see Krishnamurti, which I was really inspired by Krishnamurti. Brockwood Park was not very far, and a very dear friend of mine had offered me to go there. So I had everything. It was a beautiful weather. I had a little separate, I had to eat separately because I had to eat earlier than everybody rather than this horrible, dilapidated kind of uh, office that the nuns lived into. Uh, oh, had a meal, you know. And so I was outside on the grass, beautiful weather, everything was perfect. My sister nun's friend, you know, she was really a real sister. She prepared without even telling me the best meal I could wish for, like everything I loved. She she cooked for me, you know, just she could have been jealous, you know, and say, I'm not going to do anything. She you know, pointed the fingers to me. She actually did the best meal in the world, you know. And then my very best, very good friend of mine was driving me. I had offered to take me there. So I go there, I eat the meal. I know the first thing, just to show you how things, you know, the happiness, we cannot count on it. Because when you look at the mind closely, it's quite amazing what you discover, the details of the mind. You know, like you look at your arm spool and the first thing you say, God, I won't be able to eat it all. <laughs> that was my mindset. You know, it's like, okay, first disappointment. <laughs> then I go to question, you know, eventually I get recovered from that and each other, you know, it passes, I eat, whatever, get really full up and so on. And don't predict what's going to happen. You know, forget completely. Mindlessness is that. You just don't see it anymore. You just feel very full and you know you're going to lecture. And you know what happened, don't you? So I leave the suspense just for a little while because so I go on, you know, get to the car, I get into the car with this dear friend. Go to Brockwood Park, you know, beautiful day, sit down quietly. The great master Krishnamurti in the distance, I can see him on the podium. And I'm at last going to see the real thing, you know. It's the person I've been reading books from, you know, and that really inspired me. And so that, ah, I'm going to see him. So I sit myself at the table, and the, the, the sort of his teachings begins. And at some point, I hear a bell ending, and I realize I had slept through the whole teaching. <laughs> Second disappointment. <laughs> you know, you you learn very quickly in, as a nun. You know, <laughs> the karma really comes really fast. You know, you don't need a whole kind of. You know, you experience it very quickly. I want something. Oh God, I don't want something. You know, very. We we always used to say, "Be careful what you think, because you're going to get it." You know, <laughs> it was Ramdas. I don't know if you remember Ramdas in the eighties, seventies. You know, he said, "Be careful. You, you want something." Okay, but be careful what you want because you might get it at a time when you can't, you can't stand, you know, you can't really care for it. You don't want it even. So now I'm going to come to the more meaty aspect of the talk is discipline. Why, you know, why discipline? Because we are also at, at a period of our, in our world right now where, uh, there, I mean, maybe that's changing a bit the last maybe decades or decades and a half maybe two decades, I don't know, but there was a time where there was this uh, unquestioned philosophy that if we, did, we did not do what we wanted, if we just had you know, any kind of boundaries or barriers in our wishes and desire, you know, it's like, um, you know, uh, what, there, was a, there was an expression, I'm a 
just follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your joy, you know, follow anything, you know, just be intuitive about things. And, you know, what the mind, when it's not trained, I mean, the intuition is pretty reduced. And usually it goes exactly with what you want and what you have wanted for, you know, as habitually. So um, I remember, you know, that if you talked about discipline, that's kind of bad name. It's just, um, you know, it seemed like you're just a bit, you know, you're not capable to live without discipline. It means like you're a bit sort of slow or not really tuned in with yourself, you know. You know, why do I need discipline? Why? Well, we don't need discipline until we wake up. <laughs> until we wake up. And I've been kind of training in this past for years and years and years now. But as I, as I get older and as I practice more, I've been practicing for many years, I really appreciate the fact that I have no doubt now that we need discipline. Why? Because the, the mind is very unruly. It can only cope, you know, with doing something somebody wants it to do, you know, up to a certain point, you know, through willpower through a, a strong sense of self. Our sense of self, our, stand of, our sense of ego, you know, the kind of persona we want to, pr to show to the world, and we're frightened not to show that persona to the world, because the world, in a way, is obsessed with this image that we have about ourselves, isn't it? So this persona can actually, I know from my experience, can really make us do a lot of things for a long time, just me wanting to show something or wanting to show to myself even, if not to somebody else. That energy really is not bad. I mean, it's not bad. You just at some point realize it's an illusion, just, you know, a minor detail. <laughs> but you don't think rationally it's an illusion. You have known this is an illusion, you know. And so when the sense of self is not so driven, is not so obsessed with itself, that's when you need a discipline. Do you understand? Because... You don't have that kind of uh, structure that comes from fear, that comes from uh, anxiety and worry, that comes from doubt, some, you know, all the hindrances you know, listed in the Buddhist teaching, that comes from wanting to please other people, that comes from you wanting people to please you, that comes from you, you know, fearing to be sick and so on. So there's a lot of things we do with great willfulness and great powerful intention like that simply through that image so if it's you know if we can't let it go Ajahn Shah will say make it good it's a beautiful teaching we, if we can't let it go because you know make it good I repeat it but you know there are many things we can't let go when we, when we want I gave a whole talk a few days ago about that that the path of the discipline on the path is not so much to do this, this, and this, and that, develop this technique and this technique and that, you know, to kind of be a good girl and a good boy, you know. The discipline is actually more something even less interesting for the world. The discipline is completely the one that to totally comes together with patience. Patience. And the Buddha. I describe patience as the highest discipline, highest austerity, high, highest tapas in Pali. 
Okay? Discipline. Why? Because at some point, all of us, if we do practice, if we practice meditation, you will have the insight deeper and deeper that your thoughts do not belong to you. Your feelings are not a personal feeling, even though they are embedded in your personal history, so it feels very personal. But your history is not as much, you know, so much as yours as you think. My history is a whole book of memories. My history is a little pile of memories. Very complex and very intricate, you know, very bounded together. So um, when you look at that, you begin to see how much um, your mind is dependent on things. And as you practice more deeply, and you see that you have to live with a mind that is very unsatisfactory, and the first reaction is, I must do something about it, and I'm going to find some ways of changing it. I've got to become a better person. So you encounter Buddhism, and if you're not careful, you start the same strategy with your Buddhist practice. I've got to be, to be a good Buddhist, and when you don't find in your mind the thought that corresponds to the list of good, good states of mind that you have just been reading for the last week or so, then you start being brutally criti critical about yourself because you still think it's yours. So you read, you have to be kind and generous. Then you have to be um, patient and wise. And then what you discover in your mind that you are really nasty and mean and you are impatient and stupid. Sometimes, we, even when we're not stupid, we label our sort of pronouncement stupid, you know. So when you feel they don't match and you attach to this mind and body, what happened? Conflict. Then I must practice more. I must practice more so my mind can actually become what I want. But don't worry about your mind. Just forget about it. It won't leave you alone, even if you forget about it, by the way. It's alive and well. And it's not going to die when you like it to die. You know, it's not going to let go of things when you want it to let go. So a lot of our practice has to do with, okay, you've said, the Buddha says something, quote-unquote, you know, I must be mindful. Or mindfulness, this quality of mindfulness is very important, you know, in the meditation practice, concentration, mindfulness, and effort. So... You, you, you agree with the Buddha, he said, yes, I think I must develop mindfulness. Then you develop mindfulness, you know. What happens is that when you develop mindfulness, you're not realizing that you are really calibrating your telescope. Do you understand? You are beginning to kind of make sure that your view is going to be more right, quote-unquote. So you are actually, um, you know, Preparing your mind, the mind is getting more clear about what you see. And some people might be absolutely horrified because suddenly they didn't think they were angry. And suddenly they begin to perceive this feeling in the heart, you know, for the slightest thing. I mean, 
I used to feel I could kill somebody because they were cutting the onions, not the French way. I did not know until I was a nun. I thought I was quite sort of debonair type of thing, you know, type of person, kind of kind, you know, free spirited. You know, I don't mind whatever you do is fine. You know, whatever you say is lovely. No, that don't don't bother me, but you know, it's fine. And then you're in a kitchen at Chitas, you know, doing a training, intense training into being kind and generous and patient and keeping your precepts and so on, which all founded in loving kindness and love, you know. And then you, you suddenly, with this wonderful, you know, uh, your magnifying glass, you know, being turned more and more clearly into the right thing, you don't have too many obstacles anymore. Yeah, see it now. And then you see somebody cutting an onion in the wrong way and you want to beat them up. <laughs> now, is that my mind? Of course it's not my mind. It's just just conditions passing through, you know. It's just thank you. You say thank you for being so clearly stupid, you know. But then you don't think you're stupid. It's just like, what a funny reaction, you know. At the time, it made me laugh. I have to say, I had some perspective, you know, on the fact that we can... We discover a self that is much more independent than you think. You know, you just think it's own thing. It doesn't ask you permission. You know, do you, you know, can I be wise and just say to the sister, "How lovely! You, you do it in a different way than we did." You know, I said, "How, how wonderful! That's the way the Brits, you know, cut their onions. Lovely, lovely way. I really like it. Yeah, teach teach me sometimes. You know, it's like it's like a kind of you know, it's like a lightning rod, you know, that comes out and, you know, <laughs> feel like beating them up with words, you know. So where does that come from? Is that happy or is it miserable, you know? So the discipline is about, is what the Buddha talks when he said, there is an end to suffering, okay? And there is a path leading to the end of suffering for good, for good. This path is for liberation. It's not just for half liberation. It's actually to let go of all this poison, the stuff, you know, that we live all the time with and makes us really unhappy. Now, the uh, uh, discipline is um, something that is not always easy to understand because it's associated with something quite harsh often. Um, and if you, you know, feel in a bad mood, it's not so good. Like for me, I trained as a dancer for many years, you know. And uh, I realized, actually, in the world, we have a lot of good training for not following our feelings, our moods, you know. Like when you work, you have to realize you don't have to go to a monastery to see that you're already training your mind, not consciously, maybe, not realizing you're already doing a lot of work. By being with people you don't want to be, you know, your best, your favorite boss is gone and you grieve, grieve them, you know, or your friend or your sisters or your cat or whatever, you know. And then, but in, in the monastery, you find suddenly that um, this path that you discover is to help you to keep the intention clear. It's like, you could say it's like a repro reprogramming the mind, you know, at some level, but it's with conscious intention. So that aspect of consciousness is very important. It's not just a sleepy intention. It's not just something that just happened hap haphazardly. Gosh, it's word in English. It's not easy. Is it? 
haphazard. <laughs> and then you, you know, you just don't know what you're doing, you don't know, you know. The conscious, you know, the path of in Buddhist teaching is one something you take on board and you really begin to develop consciously and mindfully to see the cause and effect of your action, of your speech, of your thoughts. And that's what happened to me. I'm just sharing my experience. You know, it you need to put your whole heart into it. You know? And it doesn't look like much. Right? Because we believe the world is real, you know? We believe that everything I see is real. You know, so if I just stay in one monastery for many years, maybe just practicing, I feel what have I done for my life? Nothing. I haven't helped other people, I haven't liberated this one and that one, I haven't done many things. So people even now ask me, you know, what should I do? You know, should I help others? Because it, there, there's so much suffering in this world, you know, you could you could spend a whole life just, you know, saving lives. You know, from battered women to hungry children to those poor kind of, you said balen, you said balen in English. It's big animal. It's water. <laughs> wells, that's right. Those poor wells that just kind of end up on the beach, you know, because they've been poisoned by petrol or whatever, you know, horrible things, or all these poor little animals, you know, that kind of die and so on. So there's endless thing we can do to the world, endless opportunity to do good. Okay, my friend in America who teaches, you know, Tibetan Buddhism out there, I remember at a conference one of them was sharing, you know, <laughs> so, you know, there's so many, you know, I mean, I just quote her according to what I remember, but it's like we have so many chances to be a bodhisattva that basically they kill themselves over, you know, to kind of save every 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 sentient beings, but she's still a, a Tibetan teacher. She doesn't quit her tradition. Because she, you know, so we have to be, um, you know, conscious that the goodness that we cultivate in our heart affects deeply your environment. And I'm going to give you another little teaching of the Buddha for that, because I think it's very my, I, I call it the most Mahayana, the most Mahayana teaching in Theravada Buddhism. <laughs> and he says, because in a way, uh, you know, where does the mind begin and ends? Do you realize that? Just, just ask yourself, okay? How far does it go to help other people, you know? So he says simply something like that. When you keep the five precepts to refrain from harming any living beings, to refrain from taking that which is not given or stealing, to refrain from sexual misconduct, okay? Promiscuity. To refrain from lying, backbiting, slandering, gossiping, uh, speaking idly about anything. Um, you know, when you refrain from taking drugs, intoxicant and beverage that clouds the mind and confuse the consciousness, you free numberless beings from fear, from enmity, and from oppression. Now, you don't believe in this, but it's a mighty message, isn't it? Powerful. And in return, we also partake of this freedom from fear, from enmity, and from oppression. 
pretty good program, isn't it? Just five precepts. I like to repeat it because, you know, people don't appreciate the goodness, the effect of the goodness of their mind. Respecting what is good, honoring what is good. You know, and to, you know, turning away from unskillfulness, from that which is not, which is destructive, which is negative, judging, criticizing. And it takes a long time to know that our mind is very agile to, to go into that kind of program. That's all he knows for many people. That's all you know. Continuing to be negative, to be destructive about you know with yourself with others so the, the the training is not to destroy the mental states or these emotions or these passions or whatever it's not to destroy them it's to um, you know through your meditation practice to see clearly meditation practice means that you develop the quality of mindfulness awareness that enables you to be conscious of what's happening in you to be conscious of your feeling, of your mood, of the story going on in your mind. And it's not obsessive, it's relaxed. You do it in a relaxed way. You know, and at first it is, it feels difficult because any discipline at first is not easy. You know, when you start dancing, you look really awkward when you don't know how to dance for anything, you know, or you start any skills at first, it's hard because you don't, you know, you're very gauche within French. You have this word, gauche, in English too, don't you? I don't know what it means in English, but in French it means slightly awkward, you know. You does kind of maladroit, or just like not very, uh, uh, kind of, anyway, can't do it very well, to make it simply. Yeah. So the same with the training and the discipline. You know, it takes a while to feel really at ease and to be, to feel this is a natural unfolding in yourself, you know. And meditation is what it is what takes you, you know. The ability to develop the quality of vigilance, mindfulness, awareness is what helps you to have, uh, to sustain a, a, a kind of, a, you know, a lens, the lens of your mind in a constant, balanced, clear way. Do you understand? Because the lens of our mind is very quickly distorted by everything that goes through it, you know. So in your meditation, thanks to the Buddhist teaching, you know, the Buddha says, it's anicca dukkha anatta. So you start actually taking refuge in this mindfulness and you look at what's going on. And then you can see, oh, things are changing, moving. Oh, yeah, my mood is gone. My... And then you don't just forget it. You just take stock, you know, what's going on. You You remember you are... Your sati, you know, means to memorize. You, this memory is there in yourself. Every direct experience leaves a memory in us, you know. But it's not a memory that burdens your heart. It's just an, an experience as part of yourself. You know, it's 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 is is in you. You know, and the more you cultivate this um, discipline of mindfulness, right effort, right. You know, which goes together. I mean, the, the Noble Eightfold Path is consists of three sections. There is sila, samadhi, and panya. So, ethic, meditation, and wisdom. In fact, when you read it in the book, it's panya, uh, sila, and 
samadhi, and that means meditation aspect, not concentration, but meditation, the three factors for meditation that support your meditation, your mind in, in, you know, in your meditative practice. So, um, you know, you remember that the Buddha is called the physician of the mind. Yeah? He's the one who heals the mind. His teaching is a healing for the mind-heart. And what does he heal? Well, he heals in us this suffering, or called dukkha, that is part of a deluded or ignorant mind that doesn't know, a mind that doesn't know that things are changing. The mind that doesn't know that things are insatisfactory. And because of the lack of knowledge, we keep looking for satisfactory things. We keep looking for that thing which one day will make me happy forever and ever into the sunshine or the rainbow, whatever you want to. Yeah? We keep looking at this because we haven't the knowledge yet that human being is totally unsatisfactory. There's nothing more irritating than human beings. Have you noticed that? Have you been able to acknowledge that? You don't get maybe irritated by each other, do you? No? Just me? It was so liberating the day I said that to myself, you know. I said, God, human being is so incredibly irritating. It was so, li so liberating. After that, human beings were totally fine as far as I was concerned. They were just the way they are. They are an irritating kind of monkey's mind stuff, you know. But they're still lovable and endearing, you know. Just like this person or this person, which is human, that's it. So a human being. But... Notice for how long we're looking for the superhuman man or women, don't we? Son or daughters, children, aren't we? We're not just looking for just average man or women, dogs or cats. We're just looking for something that's going to love you much, you know? It's going to care for all your delusion as tranquilly as possible so you notice nothing. <laughs> You don't notice anything. <laughs> kind of pat you on the back. Yes, dear money, you're very good. Love you just the way you are. And ten years later, you end up like a wreck, you know, because you haven't woken up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so make sure what, who you, what and who you associate with. What is it that you are missing? Is it really worth missing it? Just double check, you know. And what is a discipline is to const constantly remind ourselves each day, why am I here for? I could die tomorrow. This, for me, has been what got me into being a nun. At some point. I didn't think of ordaining. In fact, I hadn't planned at all. I didn't particularly like all this religious stuff, you know. But there we are. <laughs> it's out of control. It's not my mind, you know. It's like, didn't like religious stuff, but they ended up doing what, you know, I hadn't planned, basically. So in case it happens to you, just look at the, you know, look at your mind brightly, you know, look at the heart life brightly, because when we are happy and, you know, bright, give a little bit of hope to this universe, you know, in ourselves, rather than being hopeless all the time, you know, 
mankind is terrible. We'll never get out of this mess. It's probably true, but... <laughs> but at the same time, it's just, you know, within the context of Buddhism, you're looking at the heart, because in the teaching of the Buddha, you're actually not preparing yourself for the next life, but you're preparing yourself to actually live without greed, hatred, and delusion. So when it stops, you don't know, but you keep going, because you notice that living with a disease is not as good as living free from disease. Even though if you can't maybe heal all at once and become an arahant overnight. But at least you start clearing the path, you know, clearing the way. You know, when you have lots of eczema around the body, you know, you just kind of scratch everywhere. Then suddenly your arms and you're free from eczema and then your legs and it feels better, doesn't it? For those who have, I haven't suffered from eczema, but I have friends who have, you know. It's like an eczema, isn't it? You keep scratching. So, um, yes, we need a very strong discipline in our human life, but it's not a blind discipline. It's realizing that without discipline, you're completely lost. Lost. And there is discipline that goes together with the Buddhist path, you know, the, what we practice at Amaravati, the Buddhist teaching, and the discipline we undertake voluntarily. But discipline it applies to everything at some level, you know. And it means simply, if you know, being able to keep your priorities right. A lot of our, the reason why we need discipline is because very often we get constantly distracted by our greed, our hatred, and delusion, you know. We get distracted. It's just a natural mind. I get distracted too. You know, it's like not so special. I notice every day. And sometimes I say, oh, Lord, people can do things, so many good things for the world and so on, you know, and you're still eating your cup of, drinking your cup of tea and, and having a piece of chocolate, you know, and I could be doing something more serious. And then you say, well, you know, yeah, it's true. That's what's happening. And then you can, you know, maybe reprogram your day where you're going to cut down all the cups of tea for the next month. Do you know, the mind has a way of strategy which is not always helpful. But it's very good as, a, you know, as a human discipline to keep focused on what is really important for your peace of mind, for your happiness, your true happiness, you know. And a true, um, you know, true well-being in oneself. So after a while, even though you still have a lot of, you know, a lot of conditioning and habits causing through your mind, the conditions and so on, there is a, a general sense of happiness. I can feel, you know, my, in my mind, I can, I feel my mind can experience it. That is in that happiness, you know. It's not my happiness particularly, but it's a mind that is been trained in a way, or is continued to be trained in the, in the, with a complete confidence in the good. You know, no doubt. There's not, you know, the good. To do good, to refrain from doing evil and purify the heart. A complete confidence. When you have a complete confidence in something, it's very joyful, isn't it? That's what it is. That kind of energy, you know, of joyfulness. 
So it's not just happiness because I get my piece of cake. It's just, you know, your mind just is in this unconditioned happiness in a way. Brightness is the level of energy and the level of, uh, um, you know, clarity that helps you to not lose the perspective on life or not lose the clarity of priorities and so on. And you can see a monastery like Amarawati is a great help for many people to keep re, uh, you know, reaffirming one's priorities, you know, because it, it's really hard to go against the stream of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's very hard to go against the stream. There's a lot, you know, the whole power of delusion is one of, uh, you know. Um, it, it kind of drags you down, you know, it's like the law of gravity, it drives you down, depressed, because you, you're being dragged down, misery, you're being dragged down, keep dragging down, you know, and then to go against that, you know, not to repress what drags you down, but to understand that there is another way, the way of seeing when you get, you know, conditionally elated, conditionally miserable. And then at some point the mind is realized that it's bright and clear or you know even clear with your own confusion, you don't have to change things, you know. Sometimes confusion will come through, you see it, you know, it's not a big deal. It comes and goes. You don't have to beat yourself up to be the person you still want to be. So you know, when you're dead and when you're going to be dying. I used to remind myself, Sundra, I don't expect you know perfect condition because the day you die, it's not going to be, it's not going to be perfect. I, I had this little voice keep telling me, you know, the day you die, I don't think you'll have the perfect peace necessary, nor the perfect joy, nor the perfect clarity about what's going on in you. So just keep going, you know, without worrying about, you know. But one puts one's heart into it, you know, and you find that the fruits of this um, giving to the practice, to the life, is um, is a very beautiful result, very beautiful true, uh, fruits, you know. You know, I can see how much that is uh, bringing a quality in one's life which is founded in kindness. Not everybody sees that, you know, I mean, no, don't expect anybody to notice anything. Because one the day I actually was developing my intense meta practice at Chittas as a young nun, you know, mopping the floor in the morning chores. And, you know, one of the nuns jumped on me and thought I was attacking her more or less with my mop, you know. <laughs> when I was just doing me all being me happy, me all being at peace, me all be, you know, I was kind of concentrated on my... But there was not much wisdom. I might have kind of got the mop on her feet while she was doing the flowers, you know. That's what we do a lot of the time. We practice our thing and, you know, we don't know. It. They, don't, one don't, they don't notice what I'm doing, you know. And we assume that everybody is reading our mind, don't they? Don't we? We assume a lot. Eh? We, we think people, you know, why isn't she doing that? We think, and that's what I used to think, you know. Don't you think how wonderful I am, you know? Can't you see that, you know, how lovely I am? I do all these things for you. Can't you see it? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're just mean and nasty <laughs> to me most of the time. Oh, you know, it's not me, <laughs> you know. 
So since the tea is coming, it's one moment of happiness we can have now. <laughs> to clear the air and... Okay? Okay. <laughs>